morning, Glory America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Bonjour. Hi to our Canadian friends. That music means it's time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. The last radio hour of each week is devoted to a conversation about the big issues, the long, the lasting, the enduring ones. Either with Dr. Larian, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues today, we are honored to have Dr. Matthew Spaulding back with us. He is the director of the Kirby Center, the Hillsdale College Lantern of Reason, the lighthouse of sweet argument and persuasion in the shadow of the Capital. Dr. Spaulding, good Friday the 13th to you. Good morning here. How are you doing? I'm great. We'll talk about the Supreme Court in just a second. I've got to bring you up to speed with a little breaking uh, uh, news. Theresa May is sending out a desperation email to her MPs to join her for tea at Checkers today uh, at 3.15. It kind of looks like that government is falling apart, Matt Spaulding. And I, I posited in the last hour, if you go against the center of your party... The party will break you. You won't break the party. And I believe she betrayed the party on Brexit. Your assessment? No, I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I think that she's shown uh, weakness on that from the beginning. She thought she could hold together, and now it's collapsing. This is an example of where uh, you know President Trump going over there and, and making his arguments and laying out things reveals what's going on. I think he made apparent what was already shattering. Uh, in that government, I, I, I don't see how it can can uh, can hold up uh, uh, under this. I, I also think that Merkel is not in good shape in Germany either. I think I think the the effect of the Trump presidency in Europe uh, is to bring to the fore a lot of these internal debates which have been percolating under the under the surface in, in you know, Brexit in England. I think this one's going to just implode. Yeah, my, my prediction is that by the end of next week, Michael Gove will be the Prime Minister of Great Britain in a caretaker, hard Brexit fashion, and that they'll have a real leadership election once Brexit is done, and then they'll go to the people, uh, and they'll say, this is what we've done. I think they'll win, but Michael Gove, I, I just don't think you can carry on when you try and go against the center of the party. With Donald Trump, who's not really a Republican, uh, in the traditional sense, but he did do the number two, the one and two thing: uh, rebuild the military, seven hundred billion this year, seven sixteen billion next year, and appoint the judges. These are the That's number right. one That's and right. two things, and so he's not battling the core of his party like May is. No, well, well, he is and it isn't. Remember, there's a, there's a certain sense in which I think he's he's done those things you suggested, but he does challenge, if you will, the general elite leadership that has existed, the status quo. Uh, and I think he, uh, by being very open, by being by pushing on some things which were considered sacred doctrine, trade policy, for instance, I, th- I think he's raising some questions and opening up the political field uh, in a way that it hasn't been opened in some time, which I think is good, which, among other things, leads to uh, very good outcomes on judges and challenging the administrative state. In that sense, I think that uh, what Trump represents, this, this uh, breaking down of that status quo, is a larger movement, I think, which we are seeing in, in Brexit before him and now playing out in England uh, and some other countries. I, I think there is a general populist mood uh, against the modern bureaucratic states, which exist here and, is, and overwhelmingly 
uh, in European countries, which is exactly what led to Brexit in the first place. Uh, Matt Spaulding, uh, Michael Barone, the esteemed Michael Barone, described this as the classic countryside versus the capital dynamic, which has its roots all the way back to the French Revolution and even before and back to the social war on the uh, in the time of the Roman Republic, that the countryside inevitably revolts against elites when the elites get too uppity. You have lived here for how long? How long have you lived in the Beltway? <laughs> uh, well, I, too long is the technical answer, but about 20 years, 20, all right. 20, more than 20 years. So to be in it is not to be of it, right? So I'm back right. now, and so I don't consider myself of the Beltway. I lived outside of it for 30 years. I've lived 60 of my 62, I guess more like 55 of my 62 years outside of the Beltway. But there are wonderful friends here who I know you know who are part of right. Never Trump, but they really are less than a dozen people. When you come right down to it, the hard the people in the movement who have decided to leave because of Trump are about a dozen people. And I think their influence is radically overstated, especially when it comes to issues as clarifying as the Kavanaugh nomination. No, no, I, 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 I completely agree. I, I think it's overstated because they're in places that gives them a lot of influence, especially media and popular influence. So their voices are heard. But, but I think that's diminishing radically and, and quickly. I also think more and more of those that uh, their initial reaction was never Trump are becoming, well, maybe Trump, and wow, this is a, producing a lot of good things here. Uh, look, the claim here uh, for Trump never was this is a reincarnation of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Um, it's it's, it's the, This is the kind of presidency we need at this moment right now. And he needs to break through some things, clear some ground, and uh, he's actually going to keep his promises that he ran on, which turn out to be the things not only where the American people are, but the kinds of things that conservatives have been advocating for a long time. And the, the judges are very popular right now, very significant. But if you look at it more broadly, uh, th- this guy is proceeding and pushing forward uh, through his OMB, through his restructuring, through his challenges on regulations. Uh, he's really the best challenge to the administrative state and bureaucratic rule that has happened in this country since Reagan made those arguments back in the 80s. That's extremely significant. And despite what you might think about him, his character, his family, his tweets, that is a significant turn for this country uh, that is about the restoration of constitutional government, which, oh, by the way, is why the court versus country debate in this country is is contained within a constitutional structure, which is our saving grace. And on that side, on that question, Trump's on the on the right side here, and I, I can't see how you can fundamentally be opposed to him on that score. Now, let, let's turn to the court. And for full disclosure for people listening to this on a podcast, I was disappointed because I was a Raymond Kethledge fan. I still am. I really wanted Judge Kethledge. Uh, he didn't win the, the contest, but Brett Kavanaugh is a fine center-right John Roberts 2.0. Your reaction to Judge Kavanaugh? Neither one of us got our first choices. There you you know, some, sometimes uh, I wonder if we're not debating about the number of angels on the head of a pen. These are very good nominees. He's an excellent nominee. Uh, your point about Roberts 2.0, um, I, I, I see what you're saying there. I think it's been kind of misread. I don't think that's an attack on Kavanaugh. I oh, think that's, that's absolutely point not an attack. Out that, 
in the in the range of originalism, he's closer to Roberts than he is closer to Scalia. Um, but gosh, think about where we are and where we've come from, and what potentially this could lead to looking ahead as this plays out. This is an excellent pick. He's he's more than qualified, and I've been going back and reading decisions and thinking through various questions. And it's really hard to find something in some place where there's a fundamental disagreement. Uh, maybe here and there there would be some nuance, but I think a lot of that is, can be explained by uh, his position as a lower court judge, his thinking, his structure, his frame of mind, which is the important question, is solidly originalist, and we will now have an originalist majority on the Supreme Court. Uh, for the first time in my lifetime. And, and this is where I go to the rule of four, which I tried to describe in the Washington yes, Post yesterday. Yes, no, that, which was a great column. Well, the, thank you. The, the docket changes rapidly, and I don't think that people quite understand how significant it is to, predict, to replace an unpredictable, almost whimsical justice in Anthony Kennedy with a solid, predictable originalist. Expand on that for the minute that we have left in this segment. No, no. I, I think, with the, the, first of all, the, the point about Kennedy being whimsical, he was unpredictable and all over the place, which meant in the final decisions but also in determining which cases come before the court. So there was really no pattern there. And then you had a very weak, uh, flimsy jurisprudence. I mean, think about the mystery clause about the mysteries of human life. Uh, that has now changed. You're going to have an organized majority. You're going to have a solid four, not counting the, the um, uh, chief justice, which is absolutely key. Four beside the chief justice that can get those cases there. They're going to be probably pushing him pushing Roberts in the Roberts court, uh, having those decisions come before the court, which now means you can actually talk about judicial strategy and what we like to call jurisprudence. What is the prudence of the court in terms of moving this in a direction uh, which is going to restore a, a sense of an original understanding of the Constitution? That is, is monumental, historically monumental, in terms of the not only jurisprudence, but uh, Congress, the presidency, the states, uh, the, the status of, of the Constitution and our, our lives as a self-governing republic. When we come back, we'll talk about the specifics, but uh, Matt Spaulding is completely right. Dr. Spaulding and I will agree here on a lot, but here's one thing I'm going to emphasize. Chief Justice Roberts is very conservative. He's had to trim that conservatism because he had to keep Anthony Kennedy on the right side as much as possible, but he is an originalist. He is the real deal, and that is going to flower in the next few years for everyone to see. I'll be right back with Matt Spalding on the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Stay with us. Portions of the Hugh Hewitt Show are brought to you in part by the Association of Mature American Citizens, AMAC. It's Hugh Hewitt on the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. 
edu. Even though I'm in the relieffactor.com studios, this is the Hillsdale Dialogue, all of which, dating back to 2013, are collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Today's guest, Dr. Matthew Spaulding, is director of the Kirby Center, the D.C. outpost of Hillsdale College. Dr. Spaulding, let's begin to walk through the consequences of a Kavanaugh confirmation, which I believe yeah, is assumed. Yeah. What do you think is the overall impact on, on separation of powers? Oh, massive. Let let me make a very quick point just to emphasize something you said at the end of the last segment about John Roberts as the chief justice. Uh, I think you're absolutely right on the read about him. He will now have a working majority. His chief justiceship, the Roberts court, will now change. I I just finished reading a biography of uh, John Marshall. I'd like to go back and study these things. I'm actually teaching that in a course this fall. And there are cases in which John Marshall actually went with the minor, went with the other side in order to set up the circumstances for future cases. So that yep. the, 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 the job of chief justice, if you're really serious about jurisprudence, about shaping the direction of the court, is very significant. And you can't always merely fi- follow a certain doctrinal read of things. There's a certain prudential judgment that you do in building cases. So that, that, that's my general point. That's now going to shift if he's got four guys to his right um, and, 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 and not Kennedy. Uh, but, but I think the most important thing that shifts here, we can talk about the details and Chevron and this particular thing and get down in the weeds, but the larger picture is the most important thing. Because what originalism first means, primarily means, is you're looking to uh, not parts of the Bill of Rights, but the whole Bill of Rights, and more importantly, not the Bill of Rights, but the whole Constitution which first and foremost is a structural document, which means you see three branches of government, the vesting clauses are central, and you have a judicial power, an executive power, and first and foremost, you have a legislative power. And I think that that uh, understanding will now be a dominant view on the court, which means everything is seen through that prism, which means they're going to be looking at all these cases that come up uh, in terms of how it fits within the Constitution. That, when we talk about the separation of powers, that's what we mean. The back and forth between the branches, the checks and balances that we normally think of when we remember Schoolhouse Rock and things like that. But more importantly, everything government does, because the Constitution has been passed and affirmed by the sovereign American people, it is the only law to which they have taken their allegiance. Uh, They look to that thing and everything the government does has to fit between the corners of the Constitution. And I want, to, I want to preempt a little criticism yeah. here as well. The Constitution as amended. And, and because the original Constitution contained within it a process by which it could be legitimately amended, Correct. it has been legitimately amended, especially Completely with regards right. to the original stain of slavery. And that is gone. And so the 14th Amendment, when we say originalism, we're talking about the original 14th Amendment. When we say textualism, we're talking about the text of the 25th Amendment. We're talking about everything understood as... As well, a to, whole. To, to which uh, originalism sometimes is thought original means old. What original means is not, it does mean old, but it also more importantly means the original sovereign intent, which means the document itself, which includes the amendments. So your point is absolutely right. It doesn't mean going back to the 18th, late 18th century. Justice Scalia wrote a great piece, this is decades ago in which he talked about, we're not about restoring, restoring flogging here, right? 
Um, there, there, there's a certain sense in which the Constitution is a living document because it's alive, because it's supported by the sovereign people. It is the document that forms our nation. But it includes the amendments. They look at the thing as a whole, not some part of it more than another part. The whole thing, including the amendments, which last I checked is a still a, a great document. It's not been fundamentally amended in a way that is problematic. It's been deconstructed. It's been interpreted badly. But the whole thing is still uh, and is still workable. Uh, it's still great. It's still monumental. And, and for the, the most part, short. for the most part, it's not hard. People get mad no, at me right. when I say I've been teaching it for 22 years, except for the 11th Amendment. It just isn't that hard. The 11th Amendment is hard. But for the rest of it, it is just not that doggone hard. I'll be right back, America. We make it hard because lawyers like to make money on it being hard, but it ain't that hard. It's meant to be read and understood. I'll be right back with Matt Spaulding on the Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. Factor.com studio inside the Beltway. I am Hugh Hewitt, joined by Dr. Matt Spaulding for the Hillsdale Dialogue this week. Each radio last hour of the week is devoted to all the big issues of the day and of history. And I'm usually joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or Matt Spaulding. Dr. Spaulding is the director of the Kirby Center, Hillsdale's lantern of light in the in the capital, or one of their other colleagues from the uh, from the college up in Michigan that is the Lantern of the North. Uh, Dr. Spaulding, uh, when we went to break, we're talking about the effect of a Kavanaugh appointment to the Roberts Court. And I want to return just to a moment to originalism and textualism. A lot of left-wing know-nothings think that this is a call to racism, that it is a call to the old strict constructionism. In fact, originalism and textualism are different things. Uh, You can have both in a judge, and they're different varieties of originalism. But let's just say you, you already announced what originalism is. Let's talk for a little bit about textualism, because it is here where Brett Kavanaugh's record is actually most teased out in his 300 opinions, especially on the major rules doctrine under Chevron. But talk a little bit about what textualism is. No, I, I think you're right. And there, there you start getting into the nuances between the range of the you know, Roberts and now potentially Kavanaugh all the way over to um, you know, a Thomas, uh, Alito, other, other justices. Uh, Scalia, in this sense, is was mostly a textualist as well. They're all originalists, but there's a particular uh, thing called textualism, uh, in which the actual text of the Constitution and the text of the law, the text that you're comparing in order to make your constitutional analysis become crucially important, and you don't go beyond that. uh, or you do it very slightly, but they become the text itself is the overriding overriding matter. And, and you alluded here to, which you're absolutely correct, where this becomes very important for Kavanaugh, who is more of a textualist, is looking at what the text of the law says uh, relative to things like Chevron, which is uh, deference to agencies when the text of the law passed by Congress is ambiguous or, or confusing. Uh, I, I think Kavanaugh will have a much stronger 
harder read. He will find less ambiguity there. He will read it on its face. Um, and and that will bring a, a serious to, to the court uh, and, and a voice that will be uh, very strong, which I actually also think will draw Roberts in as well, because he actually tends to be some of a textualist, uh, I think, more than a broad originalist as well. Uh, going back to, for instance, the Obamacare case, um, I think actually Kavanaugh was uh, uh, better on the health care question as, as a lower court judge. Uh, his reasoning there was very tight, and he would have actually probably thrown it out because if it was a tax, he would have thrown it out because it didn't originate in the House. He was being very textualist. Um, uh, Roberts was doing more kind of, I'm, I'm the chief justice, i got to figure out how to keep comedy and, and strengthen the court here. So I, I think Kavanaugh's textualism will actually have a, an effect of pulling him into that majority, which is good. Uh, but I think you'll see a lot more things looking specifically at congressional laws, uh, reading them very tightly, and that will actually have a strengthening of um, uh, the separation of powers uh, in and of itself, which would be an extremely good uh, addition to the court. You know, Matt, I've had a long-running argument with my good friend Mark Levin. I think that uh, National Independent Federation, uh, Sibelius, the Obamacare decision, was a brilliant decision by the Chief Justice for a lot of reasons, but especially because of its political consequences downstream of destroying the Obama um, uh, coalition, of allowing, of, of giving teeth to the spending clause, of getting five votes for the Commerce Clause limit for a whole bunch of different reasons, kind of a brilliant decision, but with a five-person majority now, we will see them roll out in ways we have not seen before, and I want to pause for a moment on Chevron deference for the Steelers fans. Chevron is the name of a case. The holding of that case is administrative agencies are presumed by this court to have expertise that Congress is aware of and that we are going to defer to. Ever since that disastrous decision courts have genuflected the federal agencies, except on what is known as the major rule exception, where they've begun to come back in. I would not be surprised if to see the Chief Justice write a decision as definitive as Citizens United was, or in our recent case, repealing the right of unions to loot their members' uh, paychecks, repealing Chevron and saying, no, courts are going to take a hard look at every one of your rules against the statute from which it came. Uh, no, I, I think you're right. I, I think the, the Chevron doctrine uh, is probably one of the leading examples of something that's going to come out of this particular appointment. But having said that, I think we were tending this way. Um, look at last term when, uh, when there's a uh, – even Justice Kennedy was raising questions about Chevron deference. Um, so I, I think we're going to go that way. I think it will pull Roberts in. I think there will be a definitive and strong argument here. Uh, but again, let's let's emphasize on what the broader context of that is. Uh, the argument was that they should defer to agencies in reading ambig ambiguous statutes. Um, that's a violation of originalism in terms of an originalist understanding a reading of law generally. It's it's not necessarily conservative or liberal. It's it's uh, to what extent do you defer to agencies as opposed to Congress, who actually made the law. And I, I think there we're, we're in line for a, a powerful uh, decision because this has gone way off the rails, way beyond any reasonable argument that I think this doctrine comes back, goes back to Rehnquist and Scalia when it was first introduced. It's gone way beyond that. 
And I think uh, a there will be a clear majority. The only question is how strong that decision is. I think it's likely going to be strong because one place, I think the primary place where Kavanaugh is the strongest overall, writing this majority is going to be the strongest overall, is pulling back what we call the administrative state and the bureaucracy. And now I, I also guess is that's why that's why the president picked Kavanaugh in the end. I, I agree. Dan, the White House counsel, is a bird dog on this. He's I agree. He's, he knows what he's doing, and there's a logic at the Supreme Court and blow it to dismantle the administrative state and administrative law. And this is a piece of it, but there's an overarching strategy here. We, we could have a Lochner-like reversal on Chevron that will shake uh, every agency to its core. But I'm also looking forward to clarity on the first two clauses, the religion clauses, because now with five ju- – the, the Establishment Clause is so – uh, distorted from what it originally was intended to do. Anyone familiar with Madison, anyone familiar with Jefferson, anyone familiar with the Federalist Papers and the, and the time of the founding, the Establishment Clause is easy. We have turned it into a, a nightmare of crush cases and Ten Commandment plaques when it isn't that. And the Free Exercise Clause is easy. We have turned it into hair splitting when it ought to be a robust defense of, of liberty of conscience. I think right. Justice Gorsuch will take the lead here, and I think we're finally going to get rid of a lot of the of the wreckage of the First Amendment case law of the last uh, 15, uh, 20, uh, 30 years. Uh, absolutely right. And again, again, I'll make two broad points. One is what we will st- see much less of are these crazy little tests and determinations and scrutinies and things and a broader view of what the purpose of the First Amendment is, which you've outlined. It's been reversed. Free exercise is supposed to be very broad, uh, and establishment was supposed to be very strong but specific. Uh, and we reversed that, number one. And number two, you, you pointed to something out, I think, unintentional, which is very important. You're going to have a majority of five people. We're focused on Kavanaugh. We've been talking about Roberts. But in a majority of five people, the, justice plays a, the chief justice plays a key role, but the different justices underneath them are going to take leads on different issues. Uh, and their expertise is going to come out. And your point, Gorsuch is going to take the lead on that one. And I think that's how you build a majority and how you actually have a very significant majority because they're going to have different things they're focusing on. And that's great. That's exactly how an originalist court should work. Uh, and people and, people and might want to know. I'm just predicting here. I'm just spitballing. I think Justice Thomas is going to put teeth into the spending clause with the support of his colleagues. And I think Justice Alito is going to take the First Amendment speech and association rights and make sure that they are, as he just did, as he just wrote, right? He just handled the union dues case. That's right. So so in the the past, when we thought about these guys, when Scalia was there in his heyday, he was writing, he's in a minority, he's dissenting, and he's writing for the future. And we, oh, this is all terrible. What's going to happen? Now it turns out that all these decisions and all these setups, and you've got, a, you've got your team. You've been putting place, people in place. You've got a team now. They have different expertise. You've got a majority. You've got a chief justice who I think actually knows how to be a chief justice. Um, and now you let them go and follow and pursue their arguments. And the four underneath the chief justice have the four in order to call cases to the court. And so now you can think strategically in, on a – I mean, you know, Roberts can think now on a 30, 40 year plan. Yeah. And by the way, I think Justice Kagan will join them because she wants to go to the party. I don't know about the other three, but she wants to go to the party. Justice Breyer may want to come into the party for antitrust as well and trade tickets at the door. Let me propose to you. 
Yeah, let me let me pose to you as well. I think the chief will take the lead on finally eradicating affirmative action. He wrote in dissent last year or, or two years ago, the way to end racial discrimination is to end racial discrimination. It was really right. brilliant. I also think he will put the stake through the redistricting uh, meddling that Justice Kennedy always kept the door open, always wanted to try and get in there. And I believe, again, this is just a prediction. I think just the chief justice is going to reinvigorate takings. I do believe. Finally, after 30 years, people's property is not going to be trifled with by the administrative state anymore. Look, I I agree, but let me point out generally, this is not like we've been waiting and having this plan locked in a a basement closet, and now we're going to brush it out and get it and, and put it in play. These things, the logic of them have already been out there, and now you've shifted the court to a majority um, and 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 can follow that logic playing out in, in, a, in a court series. This is not some sort of revolution. In many ways, it's an it's a it's a change that's been implied and coming for some time, but now you can actually carry it out. Uh, on on gary, gerrymandering, right? The 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 Gilvey Whitford case that was already up, really signaled that we're probably going to allow this to go forward in this manner, which I think you've rightly predicted. Affirmative action has been hanging on by the. Teeth, you know, it's it's hair teeth for some time now. The logic of that, I think that's going to go. It's a question of when and how. What the case is, and I think you're probably right about uh, uh, the the other matters takings. as well. Takings. Uh, takings. Um, what one thing to keep in mind here is that uh, the court rightly uh, takes cases and controversies that come before them, which means we can't predict completely what's going to come up, how it's going to come up, and the particulars of the case. So we can't predict the extent of the case for that matter either. The most important thing is the logic behind this majority. Does it cohere? Is there a consistency to it? And can it be ready when cases come before it? And can they strategically pick and choose cases to try to direct it as much as they can? And they've got a menu of 8,000 cases per year from which to draw. We'll come back after the break and talk about that. Stay tuned. It's The Hugh Hewitt Show. Hugh Hewitt, thank you for listening today. Uh, The president and the prime minister will be getting a joint news conference shortly and will probably be carried by Mike Gallagher. We'll probably be carrying it on many of these stations, so be sure to uh, watch that. Matt uh, Spaulding is my guest. Dr. Spaulding is the president of the Kirby Center of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.com. Edu Hillsdale.edu. And, of course, all of these dialogues dating back to 2013 are found at HughForHillsdale.com. Dr. Spaulding, let's finish by talking about everyone else talks about Roe, and it really ought to be Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the privacy rights. There are 8,000 cert petitions every year before the court, between seven and 8,000. They can choose the new majority in October to go in any direction they want, but they can't just choose because they're limited by cases and controversies to reach out and reverse Roe. A state must act first, usually a 20-week restriction, which I believe they will uphold and they will rewrite it with great deference towards the states. But let's be clear, uh, abortion in some states, such as California, New York, is in the state constitution, and this court is not for changing the state constitution, is it? No, I, I, I think that's absolutely right, which points to, the, to a, a broader point here. We could, we could talk about the marriage decision as well. 
which is the courts, by their very nature, are not ones who fundamentally change the, the political direction of things. They're not supposed to. They're not supposed to legislate. Uh, and in this case, they really can't fundamentally correct some of these questions. What they can do is they can open it up so that legislative bodies uh, in, in Congress at the federal level and the states can have those debates, and we can have a, a, an open debate in which you can have legislative accommodation. And then the courts can come in and say, you can do that, you can't do that. So I think that abortion will come up uh, in cases. There will be regulatory questions. Uh, there will be medical questions. But a, a fundamental uh, challenge uh, at, the, at the national level probably is not going to occur coming up through a case. More likely, it's going to start over time devolving to states and legislatures. But my point is that's exactly the way it should be. And this goes back to this overall, I, I think, movement here. Let's, let's keep in mind here that originalism means ultimately, and the most important thing, which we're not talking about, is a de-emphasizing of the courts. Um, we have for too long made the assumption of judicial supremacy and that sometimes we conservatives also kind of put too much emphasis on, on the courts, when in reality what an original understanding of the Constitution means, the Constitution is a political, lawmaking, uh, popular, self-governing document. It means a lot of emphasis, as much as you possibly can, goes back to lawmakers, lawmakers. Um, and I think that's extremely important for us to remember. If no other place, it, with something like... Uh, uh, abortion and in questions like uh, marriage and religious liberty legislators where they can make accommodations are the best place to have these kinds of conversations not before courts which make binary decisions winners and losers uh, and set uh, the, the kinds of presence with precedents which become very problematic politically there, there's no prudence in the current court system one of the most important things is to juri for jurisprudence to, to rightly push it out to the popular branches of, of government. Well said, Matt Spaulding. On that note, I will thank you. And we are going to cut away from the Hillsdale Dialogue and listen to Theresa May in Great Britain. ...efforts to undermine our democracies. Turning to our economic cooperation with mutual investment between us already over $1 trillion, we want to go further. We agreed today that as the UK leaves the European Union, we will pursue an ambitious US-UK free trade agreement. The Chequers Agreement reached last week provides the platform for Donald and me to agree an ambitious deal that works for both countries right across our economies. A deal that builds on the UK's independent trade policy, reducing tariffs, delivering a gold standard in financial services cooperation, and as two of the world's most advanced economies, seizing the opportunity of new technology. All of this will further enhance our economic cooperation, creating new jobs and prosperity for our peoples for generations to come. The UK-US relationship is also defined by the role we play on the world stage. Doing this means making tough calls and sometimes being prepared to say things that others might rather not hear. From the outset, President Trump has been clear about how he sees the challenges we face and on many we agree. For example, the need to deal with the long-standing nuclear threat of DPRK, where the agreement in Singapore has set in train the prospect of denuclearization, to which the UK is proud to be contributing expertise. Or the need to address the destabilizing influence of Iran in the Middle East, where today we've discussed what more we can do to push back on Iran in Yemen and reduce humanitarian suffering. 
or the need for NATO allies to increase their defense spending and capability. Time for me to go, America. It sounds like everything is rosy. The president will talk shortly. Mike Gallagher on many of these stations will bring you the latest or our local programming will. It, uh, you know, the media likes to overstate all this stuff. It looks like the president and the prime minister are getting along well, but I think at this time next week, it's not going to be Prime Minister May. I really don't think it's going to be Prime Minister Gove. Write it down. We'll talk about it next week. Uh, Thank you, Adam and Dwayne. Thank you, Ben and Mason. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to Matt Spaulding and Hillsdale. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. All of our conversations at HughForHillsdale.com. I'll be back on Monday with the next Hugh Hewitt Show. Portions of the Hugh Hewitt Show are brought to you in part by the Association of Mature American Citizens, AMAC. 